The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown presents The Quiet Man of Narragansett, Episode 2. Five minutes before the appointed time, Elizabeth tiptoed from her room, closed her door silently, and moved to Chester's threshold. She didn't knock. Instead, she listened to the muffled voices behind the door. Well, one voice, really. A fast-talking male who spoke in long, exasperated sentences. But she couldn't make out words. Elizabeth longed for a mason jar so she could use that old eavesdropper's trick. Then the voice grew louder. The man was moving closer. Words became clear. You told her eleven o'clock? You sure? Well, then, shouldn't she be here by now? Someone protested distantly. Fine, then, I'll go look. The handle turned, and the door was flung open. Standing before Elizabeth was a man, dressed in a white lab coat, a surgical mask pulled down to his neck. He wore tiny round spectacles, and his hair was primly parted in the middle. His salt-and-pepper beard shot out from his chin like a spear point. Oh, he exclaimed. Are you? He whirled around, arms akimbo. Is this our guest? The hotel room was a mirror image of Elizabeth's own. Deep inside, next to the queen-sized bed, Chester sat in a chair. A medical blanket was fastened around his body, and the wig was removed. His head was fully bald, exaggerating the girth of his facial hair. He smiled, a desperate, affectionate smile. Yes, Chester whispered. Elizabeth. On each side of Chester stood a nurse, fully aproned and masked. One held a clipboard and pen. The other loomed over a metal tray of tools. Well, come on in, let's not dawdle, the man commanded and slammed the door behind Elizabeth. The nurses glanced at each other. The bespectacled man folded his arms impatiently. But Chester beamed, his eyes glistening. Elizabeth went over to him, bowed curtly, and said, How are you, Chester? I'm glad you're here, he croaked. So very, very glad. Well, that makes one of us, the man said. I've advised Mr. Hazelton against this. Your presence here is extremely dangerous, to say the least, if he hadn't insisted. Elizabeth cut him off. You are Dr. Weiss, I assume? The doctor straightened his lab coat. If you must know, yes. From one student of medicine to another, said Elizabeth, let me tell you what I see. There are two perpendicular incisions across Mr. Hazelton's cranium one from frontal to parietal, the other tracing the coronal suture. From the look of the scars and the diminished erythema, I'd guess these cuts were made at least six weeks ago. Up close, I observe some lineugal growth, but it's clearly retarded. In short, I am looking at a craniotomy. Dr. Weiss stared at Elizabeth, mouth agape. His arms remained crossed, but the perturbation had drained from his face. All at once, 
he lifted an arm, snapped his fingers, and said, Leave us! With mechanical precision, the nurses set down their effects, strode across the room, and disappeared through the front door. In a matter of seconds, the three of them were alone. And where, might I ask, said Dr. Weiss in a quieter tone, were you a student of medicine? Elizabeth jutted her chin. St. Luke's Medical Academy. Heard of it? Again, the doctor's expression softened. He rolled a tongue inside his cheek, then cracked a smile. I have. In fact, I'm an alumnus. Elizabeth returned his cocky grin. Are you? What are the chances you know Abner Cohen? I do. Not from St. Luke's, of course. I'm a bit older, but I studied neurology at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Cohen is a respected analyst in Philadelphia. The kid made good, agreed Elizabeth. But I'm not here to talk about old times. Chester asked me to come here. He's been through a lot, he tells me. And I'll be honest, doctor, I don't know what that means. My best guess is a tumor, but I've never seen incisions look so, how to put it, enthusiastic. Dr. Weiss turned serious again. It's not a tumor. Elizabeth turned her head sideways. Humor me? Dr. Weiss closed his eyes. When he opened them, he shot a pleading look at Chester. The patient nodded dreamily. Very well, said the doctor. I will say again for the record, and for the sake of everyone in the room, I think this is a reckless and irresponsible idea. But if my patient insists... The doctor turned to Chester. May I present Mrs. Beatrix Gordon of the Gordons. Elizabeth blinked. She studied Chester's solid face, his bushy beard, his mannish shoulders. Even concealed beneath the white blanket, the body didn't look the least bit feminine. I don't follow, said Elizabeth. This man was never a woman. No, said Dr. Weiss. You're right about that. This body has always been a man's. But as many sages have reminded us, don't judge a book by its cover. What you're looking at, Elizabeth, is a successful cerebral transplant. Room service arrived. According to instructions, the steaming pot was left outside. Elizabeth was grateful for the sight of coffee, and she graciously accepted a cup from Dr. Weiss. The physician removed the blanket from Chester's neck and pulled a lever, allowing the patient to recline in his chair. Let me get this straight, said Elizabeth. You've removed the brain from Beatrix Gordon and placed it in this man's head? Correct, said the doctor bluntly. But who is he? And what happened to his noodle? A donor. A man who died of natural causes, and his noodle was removed at the time of death. But why? It's more common than you think, said Dr. Weiss, cleaning his spectacles on his sleeve. 
The procedure has existed for a century or more, but the results were mixed. Not every cerebellum is compatible with every nervous system. The brain doesn't always take to a new body. But to answer your question, suppose you, Elizabeth, have hit rock bottom. Your luck has run out. You owe too much money. You've burned too many bridges. You have caused a terrible scandal. Somebody wants you dead. For as long as you walk this earth, in the body of your birth, your life will be in peril. You want to keep living, but you have to stop being who you were. You must become someone else. My God, was all Elizabeth could say. Please, murmured Chester. Elizabeth, don't think less of me. His voice was distant. He stared blankly at the ceiling. Elizabeth could barely discern the rise and fall of his chest. His eyelids fluttered, then closed. Dr. Weiss approached, waved a hand over Chester's eyes, and clicked his tongue. Good, he said. The sedative has taken effect. Now we can speak in private. Elizabeth stiffened. Is there anything I should know that she, that he shouldn't? You can be the judge. Mr. Hazelton has spoken very highly of you. A part of me admires his trust. You've only known each other for a short time, am I right? Not even a full day, Elizabeth admitted. Well, it's only natural, said Dr. Weiss, seating himself in a chair. A new body is like no other experience. It's like riding a bicycle, except the bicycle has a different size, different gears, different brakes. It takes time to recover, to get used to things. You get lonely sitting in a hotel. You start to miss your old friends, your old home, your old life. I call it buyer's remorse. But why do something so drastic? Elizabeth pressed. What was he, she running away from? That, said Dr. Weiss, is why this conversation is so dangerous. I've provided transplants for 26 patients so far. They come from all walks of life, gamblers, debtors, criminals, the terminally ill. One fellow was so badly burned in a gasoline fire, you could barely look at his face. The one thing they all have is money. My services are not cheap, after all. But Mrs. Gordon was something else. She was happy, healthy, had more money than most of us will ever imagine, lived in a mansion in Newport. It takes everything you've got to forfeit a life like that. Unless you have a husband like Mr. Gordon. Elizabeth felt a shiver. I see. Think of the worst man you've ever met. Mr. Gordon is worse. But why a man? Why not become another woman? Surely that would be easier. That is rare, the doctor conceded. Not unheard of, but rare. I'm no analyst, Elizabeth. We'd have to consult your friend, Dr. Cohen. But I don't sense that Mrs. Gordon resented her womanhood. She's strong. She's resolute. You have to be to survive a surgery like this. It wasn't some lifelong desire to become a man. It was the power, Elizabeth interrupted. 
to do whatever she wanted, to live without bounds. So she told you. No, but I could guess. She was a suffragette, or at least tried to be, and she wanted to know everything about my travels because she admired me, she said. The freedom, the mobility. I doubt she could have imagined a woman doing such a thing, ever. That makes sense, said Dr. Weiss, setting his coffee cup on the sideboard. But remember, she said nothing. She does not exist. That man sitting in that chair is Mr. Chester Hazelton. I worked very hard to make that paperwork official, and the last thing I need is some day-old acquaintance spilling the beans. But who would I tell? Why should it matter? In a few days, I'll be far from here. Dr. Weiss darkened. You could never be far enough from Henry S. Gordon, believe me. At this moment, Mrs. Gordon is a missing person. All of New England is gossiping about it, and he's a well-connected man. He'll stop at nothing to find her. Does he know about your practice? Not yet, as far as I know. But he could. It was a calculated risk accepting Mrs. Gordon as my patient. I was taking both our lives in my hands. But when I met her, she'd been beaten to within an inch of her life. Every last friend, every last relative had looked the other way. I couldn't let her live like that. All the same, mobsters know how to keep their traps shut. Society girls from Newport, not so much. Dare I ask, said Elizabeth, where is Mrs. Gordon now? I mean, the original. I preserved the body for six months, Dr. Weiss said matter-of-factly, just in case they have second thoughts. It's more of a courtesy. No one ever does go back. The operation is much too tricky to attempt twice. Elizabeth looked at Chester, his head tilted to the side, his arms crossed over his lap. He looked so peaceful, lying there, the quiet man who had once been Beatrix Gordon. How many things he would have to learn, the rights and mechanics of his new sex. But more than that, a body, a shape, a way of moving through the world. He must take every step like a man, talk like a man, eat like a man. For the rest of his days, he had all the privilege of a six-foot gentleman named Chester Hazelton, and all the trappings. He had escaped a prison, and for that, they should all be happy. But Beatrix never wanted to become Chester. She never wanted to stop being Beatrix. Now, she was someone else, something else, and all Elizabeth could do was feel pity. Mr. Gordon, she said, won't rest until he's found her. Is that what you said? Any help he needs, he'll have, said Dr. Weiss. Police, private detectives, any henchman he can find. If Beatrix breathed a word about me, left a single clue, he'll have a lynch mob at my doorstep then Chester can't just run, said Elizabeth. But there may be a way out of this, a way to fix everything, even Mr. Gordon. But it all depends on one thing. Dr. Weiss raised an eyebrow. On what? 
We need to bring back Beatrix Gordon. The day began with a phone call. Henry S. Gordon awoke in his bed to the ring from his bedstand. He glanced at the grandfather clock and groaned at the time. 4 a.m. What is it? He growled into the horn. Narragansett, whispered a voice. The Prior Hotel, room 203. Who is this? But the line went dead. A man's voice. A confident tone. No request for reward. And somehow, the man had traced Henry's unlisted number. This wasn't a scam, like all the other tips. This caller was the real thing. Henry was sure of it. And Narragansett, why not? Beatrix had gone there plenty of times. She'd rarely traveled anywhere else. Someone could easily have spotted her. Groggy as he was, Henry had a good feeling. He struggled to sit up. His hefty figure made this hard to do. Panting, he lifted the receiver again and dialed a number. When Commissioner Murphy picked up, all Henry had to say was, I've found her. Round up your men. Within the hour, a police car pulled into the cul-de-sac, and Henry S. Gordon stepped inside. Top of the morning, Henry, said the commissioner. Spare me your bog-trotting pleasantries, spat Henry, and get us to the wharf. Goin' fishing, are you? Henry shot him a viperish look. We're taking the next ferry. Very good, Mr. Gordon. And I trust I will not be waiting in line, Commissioner. Of course not, Mr. Gordon. When they arrived, the Commissioner turned on his siren, and they cut their way to the vessel's bow. Soon, the paddleboat was chugging out of port, and dawn began to break over the bay. Henry S. Gordon paced the deck, chomping an unlit cigar. The commissioner stood by, along with three silent officers. With each step, Henry's jowls tightened. He crushed his fingers into a fist. How he yearned to see Beatrix again, to end these six weeks of humiliation, questions, accusing headlines. Never had Beatrix disappeared for so long or inconvenienced him so much. Soon it would be over. Henry would find her. The police would drive them home. He would call the papers to make sure those damned reporters were waiting when they arrived. He would offer a few comments, expressing his husbandly concern. The matter would be settled in the public's eye. He would praise Commissioner Murphy for his efforts. He would put an arm around his wife and escort her inside, ideally within view of a camera lens. Henry S. Gordon would close the door. He would relieve the servants for the day. He would be alone with his wife. He would watch Beatrix try to stammer her apologies. When those didn't work, she'd try to scamper away. And he would follow her, from room to room, patient at first, gentle, let her hope for mercy. But slowly, 
he would unveil his rage. He would reteach her the lesson she refused to hear. There was a way she fell after that first blow across the face that always amused him, tumbling to the side, covering her cheek, her whole body convulsing with pain and fear. This was his favorite, that first reminder how much it could hurt. He loved that sight of a millionaires, a socialite, the elected secretary of the local women's club, his wife, rolled into a ball, begging him to stop. Something funny, Mr. Gordon, asked Murphy. Henry S. Gordon wiped away his sneer. Just thinking about Beatrix, he said, and how nice it will be to have her back. At the opposite dock, the squad car screeched off the boat and flew down the highway. Rays of sun shot through roadside trees, bathing the dirt road in light and shadow. They raised a cloud of dust as they motored toward the rooftops of Narragansett, the only auto traffic at this early hour. The car halted before the Pryor Hotel, a pleasant old house wrapped in verandas and patches of ivy. Henry S. Gordon leapt from the car and hurriedly waddled up the front steps. The front door was locked, so he snatched a string and rang the bell furiously. A white-haired spinster appeared at the door, looking equally annoyed. Open up, Henry commanded. You have my wife inside. The woman stepped aside, letting the five men trundle past. They barreled up the staircase, up to the second floor, Henry found room 203 and pounded on the beveled wood. Beatrix, he bellowed. It's Henry. The game is up. I'm here and so are the police. You can come out now and don't make a fuss, do you hear me? No sound came from within, but doors started to open down the hall and befuddled faces poked out. Commissioner Murphy waved them away rasping at them to stay inside. This was official business, and there was nothing there to see. Beatrix, come out this instant, Henry barked. The longer you wait. He let the unspoken threat hang in the air. But still, nothing came. This was unusual. In the past, she had appeared, bashful and tear-streaked, and mumbled her apologies before following Henry to the car. For the first time, Henry doubted the voice on the phone. Why should he believe an anonymous tip, no matter how convincing the tone? Perhaps we've been pranked, said Murphy, seeming to read Henry's mind. If we have, there'll be hell to pay, and I won't leave until we've made sure. Fetch that mistress and have her open this door this instant. The gray-haired woman appeared with the master key looking more put out than ever. She unlocked the door, and Henry barged inside. Then he froze. For the rest of his days, he would remain suspended in that moment. There was life before, and there was life after. 
nothing existed in between, and despite his most fervent wishes, his monumental power, Henry S. Gordon could not reverse that march of time. There was Beatrix, lying in bed. She wore a white nightgown, which accentuated the dried splatter of blood. Her head had been crushed, and little remained of her face but a closed eye and a nose turned sideways. Alarmed by the arrival of humans, a swarm of flies lifted into the air, swirling around the corpse. Only then did the men smell the sour decay, and one officer fell to his knees, retching. For once, Henry S. Gordon couldn't think of anything to say. He felt lightheaded. He backed away toward the hall, shoving the other men out of his way. He felt along the balustrade, then staggered down the stairs. He needed fresh air. He needed sunlight. He needed to scrub that image from his mind. Henry bolted outside, and the first thing he saw was a burst of flash powder. Blinded, covering his eyes, Henry fell against the hotel's clapboard siding. Mr. Gordon, came an unfamiliar voice. Can you tell us what you saw inside? What? Henry cried. What is this? Who are you? Topha Smith, sir. I'm with the Providence Journal. Could you tell us what you saw in there? Henry's eyes adjusted. He saw a wiry man in front of him, carrying a notebook. Behind him, a photographer readied his brownie box camera for a second shot. Get the hell away from me, Henry shrieked. No press, no press! But he already saw a second car turning onto the street, then a third. Within minutes, the veranda was crowded with reporters. Henry hid himself inside, along with Commissioner Murphy. There was nowhere to go. Henry was under siege, and little did he know the siege would last the remainder of his days. The headlines were fast and furious. Real estate magnate leads police to wife's corpse, cites anonymous tip. Then, Newport commissioner says Mrs. Gordon bludgeoned left to rot for weeks. Then, tight-lipped Henry S. Gordon suspected in spousal slaying. Then, servants claim Gordon was tyrant in home, owes hundreds in back pay. There were skeptics, of course, and plenty to chatter about. Hadn't the hotel room only been let for a few days, not weeks? And why should Gordon reveal the scene of the crime? Who called the newspapers when the death could easily have been kept quiet? And if you believed the rumors, the body wasn't just bludgeoned, but the brain had been surgically removed. Such horrifying hearsay never made ink, but locals were only too happy to compare notes in public houses and sewing circles. But one thing was certain— no one wasted tears on Henry S. Gordon. Servants quit without notice, 
and editors paid handsomely for their tales of domestic cruelty. Clients abandoned him overnight. His real estate empire crumbled and properties sold for a song. His membership at the men's club expired and was never renewed. Friends distanced themselves, the commissioner most of all. When asked, former business partners had to hum and haw, trying to explain why they had been friendly with the man in the first place. For years, Henry S. Gordon whiled away his days in his big house, broke and alone, a laughingstock and cautionary tale. When he finally died of a heart attack in his shower stall, it was a decade later. The water ran over his body for weeks before anyone bothered to check on him. His obituary graced every front page in the state, selling out by lunchtime. Elizabeth stepped out of the cab, tossed a nickel to the driver, and picked up her carpet bags. The car disappeared in a cloud of exhaust, leaving an empty street. All around, Elizabeth heard the sounds of her girlhood. The nearby rumble of Forbes Avenue, the tweet of songbirds in the trees, the calls of children playing down the block. Before her stood the house, the only home she'd ever known. The three-story row house looked exactly as she remembered it. The sandstone facade, the white trim, the upper turret, and that beloved old porch swing. She took a long and difficult breath. She hadn't anticipated such emotion, and she struggled to gulp it down. So... This is it, said her companion. It sure is. 206 Cressida Street. Elizabeth turned to Chester Hazelton, who also stood on the curb and held two suitcases. Shall we? Chester smiled. I never imagined I would say this, but ladies first. Elizabeth climbed the steps and kicked aside the welcome mat. As her mother had promised, a single key lay waiting. She fitted it into the lock and nudged the door open. The scent of their entryway intoxicated her. She eased her way across a Persian rug into the living room. Each step was carefully placed, as if treading the floorboards too hard would shatter them. Some things had changed. A new telephone on a corner table, a new icebox in the kitchen, but Elizabeth marveled at its familiarity. Every lamp and tabletop was layered in memories, along with a film of dust. Her heart ached with the joy she had never expected. She had missed this place to the core of her being, and she'd had no idea. It's a lovely house said Chester. Well, it's no mansion, Elizabeth countered. 
No, it's better. You can tell. Elizabeth touched a picture frame and sighed. I'm so glad you could be here. I'd hate to be doing this alone. Chester touched her arm. I'm glad you gave me somewhere to go, if only for a moment. The visit would be brief, they both knew. Chester was on his way to Chicago, a city that, in his former life, he'd always longed to see. A bank account awaited him there, along with secreted funds, enough to last a lifetime, if he was smart about it. Dr. Weiss had dubbed him fit for train travel, as long as he rested sufficiently along the way. And of course, between New York and Chicago was Pittsburgh. After all Elizabeth had done, the least Chester could do was join her for this homecoming. Elizabeth went to the second floor. She skipped the bedrooms, the bathroom, and the many closets. Instead, she opened the door to her father's study. A desk stood against the far wall. Diplomas and photographs covered the wallpaper. A full suit of armor stood in the corner, along with other curios. But the papers and ashtray were all gone. All that remained of her father's business was the sweet scent of pipe smoke. This was always my favorite room, said Elizabeth. She moved around the desk and sat down in her father's chair. Spring squealed as she leaned back, relaxing into its leather. Chester raised both hands and made a rectangle out of his fingers. Picture perfect, he said. Yes, agreed Elizabeth. Fits like a glove, doesn't it? Well, it's settled. I'll set up shop right here. This concludes The Quiet Man of Narragansett. The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown are written and performed by Robert Eisenberg. If you like what you're hearing, you might also enjoy The Mysterious Tongue of Dr. Vermilion and Other Stories, the first volume in the Elizabeth Crown book series. For more information about the exciting field of uncanology, visit elizabethcrown.net. Dot net.